I preached a more thorough sermon on deacons about a year and a half ago in April 2019. So if you're interested in a more thorough treatment of the diaconate, uh, perhaps answering a number of questions that might come up as we work our way through the sermon this morning, I would refer you back to that sermon, which can be found on our website. On this occasion of Jonathan and Aline's ordination as a deacon, we will be considering again the office of the diaconate, which is just a fancy way of saying the office of the deacon or the deacons. The diaconate is just a name for the office that the men who are the deacons fill. And for clarity's sake, to define terms further, when we speak about the office of the deacon, we aren't speaking about the room in which the deacon does his work, but rather we are speaking about the formal position or the formal role of the deacon. Just as the office of the pastor isn't the room that the pastor works in, but rather is the formal position or formal role of the pastor. So again, on this occasion of Jonathan's ordination as a deacon, we will be considering the office of the diaconate, but in a more limited way than we did a year and a half ago. In a moment, I will give you an outline of what I'll cover today, but first let me remind you that sermons on the leadership of the church are not just for existing pastors and deacons and aspiring pastors and deacons. That's the way we sometimes view them, that it's a a Sunday that we can safely tune out if we're not either already serving in church leadership or if we don't aspire to church leadership. But these types of sermons are for the whole church. Sermons on church leadership help all the members of the church understand how leaders are supposed to function so that they can appoint good ones and so that they can hold struggling or bad ones accountable. Sermons on leadership also help members to be better members as they understand where they as members fit in the whole organism that is the church, especially in relation to their leaders. So let's consider the diaconate this morning. And I trust that by the end, we all, myself, Jonathan, and the rest of the church members will be helped, that together we will be edified and full of worship on this special occasion as God has given the gift of a deacon to our church. So with all that in mind, now we will consider two things as we go. The first is the work that Jonathan ought to do. The second is our proper response to his work. So let's begin then with the work that Jonathan ought to do. It's evident from Acts 6 that the apostles institute the diaconate to deal with the issue of benevolently caring for the church's physically and temporally needy members. The Hebrew uh, widows were being adequately looked after. The Hellenistic widows were not being adequately looked after. And the deacons were instituted to make sure that All of the widows, who at that time were among the most vulnerable in society as there was no uh, welfare department or anything like that, they didn't have necessarily a career to sustain them unless they were younger widows and were able still to work. Um, Often they were aged women who didn't have a career and, and didn't have a husband to look after them and often they had financial pressures that they couldn't 
handle on their own. And so the church uh, took care of the widows in their midst, the vulnerable among them. And the diaconate was instituted, the office of the deacon was instituted, to make sure that all the widows in the church were adequately cared for, adequately looked after. It was important that they were properly looked after. God cares about the well-being, both soul and body, of His sheep. Benevolent and holistic care for each member of the church is certainly and inescapably part of Christ's mandate for His church. And so we see in Acts 6 that God has given to deacons a special role in tending to the physical and material needs of His sheep. As Cornelius Van Dam ably points out in his excellent book, The Deacon, this is consistent with what we know of God's character from the rest of Scripture as well as from Acts 6. Beginning with God's abundant provision for Adam in the garden before the fall. Adam wasn't just barely getting by. God didn't put Adam in the garden with meager rations of bread and water, but abundantly supplied for him all kinds of trees and plant life that would sustain his life abundantly. Continuing with God's miraculous sustenance of the children of Israel in the wilderness, he didn't just take care of their souls, but he took care also of their bodies as he led them out. You can read more about that and God's miraculous sustenance of them in Psalm 78. God's concern for the poor and the sojourner once the nation was established. Look at Deuteronomy 24, 14, Leviticus 19, 33, Leviticus 23, 22, etc. All the way down to Christ's own compassion for the crowds. For example, Matthew 9, 36. We see that God is concerned about the holistic well-being of His people. The diaconate needs to be understood as certainly nothing less than another note in this symphony of God's tender, loving care for His people. However, the diaconate should be understood also as more than that. The logic of the apostles in Acts 6 is that they themselves ought to, as much as possible, devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. The deacons who are appointed are therefore tasked with helping minimize the additional responsibilities that the apostles have to carry. The specific presenting issue in Acts chapter 6, for which the deacons are appointed, is the benevolent ministry of the church. But the logic upon which the diaconate is instituted necessitates a broader range of diaconal responsibilities than simply only administering benevolence within the church. If the apostles are truly to devote themselves to prayer and to ministry of the word, there are going to be other things in addition to the benevolent ministry of the church, which these deacons are going to have to give their attention to. And so the deacons are basically appointed in Acts chapter 6 to shoulder the primary load of either doing or overseeing basically everything else that happens in the early church so that the apostles can focus in on prayer and the ministry of the word. So we can think of it like this. The apostles have two categories of work in mind. There is category one work 
which is prayer and ministry of the word. And there is category two word, basically everything else. And the logic of the apostles is that they themselves must devote themselves to category one work. And so they need to appoint men who will either do or oversee the likewise important and legitimate category two work. Both kinds of work are important. Both kinds of work need to be done. But the logic of the apostles is that they should narrow their focus to category one work. And so they appoint the deacons to either do or oversee as much of the category two work as possible to free them up for that narrowed focus. Now, with the discontinuation of the apostolic office, contrary to what you will hear today, nobody is truly an apostle of Christ Jesus in the way that these men were, with authority to teach and rule in his name, and so on and so forth. There are no apostles in the church today. So, who are the most direct heirs of apostolic responsibilities. Who ought to be especially devoted to prayer and to ministry of the word? The answer is the pastors. So to bring this discussion of the diaconate from Acts chapter 6 into the present day, the role of deacons is fundamentally to free up the pastors as much as possible from other responsibilities so that they may devote themselves to prayer and to ministry of the word. The church still needs men devoted to category one work, prayer and ministry of the word. And so the church still needs men who will take up as much of the doing and or overseeing of category two work as possible in order that this might happen. And these two groups are the pastors and the deacons. So to repeat myself for clarity, the diaconate was instituted in order to free up the apostles, originally to devote themselves to prayer and ministry of the word. In the specific context of Acts 6, that meant overseeing the benevolent ministry of the church. Therefore, the role of the deacon is not less than overseeing the benevolent ministry of the church, but it is more than that. The logic of the apostles necessitates that. Ideally, the apostles will devote themselves to prayer and ministry of the word as much as possible. And so the deacons will take as much as possible of the responsibility for ensuring that all the other category two work gets done in order to facilitate that narrow focus of the apostles. And at present, the apostolic office is no longer extant, but the primary heirs of their responsibilities still need the same help from the deacons. The church still needs rulers and teachers who are devoted to prayer and to ministry of the word. And so the church still needs men who will do or oversee as much else as possible in order to facilitate that kind of focus. Thus, the contemporary situation could be summed up as follows. It is ideal for pastors to devote themselves to prayer and ministry of the word. And so the role of deacons is to take on either the doing or overseeing of as much of the additional responsibilities in the church as possible in order to facilitate that narrowed focus. Deacons deal with category two work. Sometimes they do it. Let me give you a couple of examples when deacons might do category two work. There are always dropped balls in the juggling act that is the local church. 
volunteers maybe at times don't show up or cancel at the last minute or someone gets sick or whatever. Somebody makes a mistake in the doing of their task and things start to drop. That happens. Traditionally, in many churches, it is the pastor or the pastors who take the initiative to do the things that need to be done that either no one else is doing or that are getting dropped. In comes the pastors to catch the dropped balls. The dropped balls default to the pastors. Consider this instead. Most of the dropped balls really ought to be caught by the deacons. Here are a couple of examples of of what that could look like. When no one else thinks to empty the garbage on a Sunday night, the pastors usually end up doing it by default. When no one else thinks to lock up the storage container, the pastors usually end up doing it by default. When no one else takes the initiative to make sure that there's enough communion juice, the pastors usually end up getting more by default. When someone else has been tasked with emptying the garbage or locking the storage container or getting communion juice and that person forgets or fails to do it for whatever reason, it's usually the pastors who end up catching those drop balls by default. That's how it works. I'm giving examples from our church, but I'm not um, saying that this is unique to us. This, ha- this happens in any church, right? There's stuff that has to get done. People forget, whatever. Often, it's the pastors that rush in and catch these drop balls. However, the vast majority of these things really should be caught by the deacons when balls get dropped. Pastors shouldn't have to be thinking about everything in the church. They should primarily be thinking on Sundays, especially about prayer and ministry of the Word. Deacons should be thinking about everything else, and they should be doing it so diligently, reliably, and effectively that the pastor's minds are actually freed up not to have to worry about these things. Sometimes deacons need to do Category 2 work, and that's one reason why deacons may sometimes actually do it. Another reason deacons sometimes need to actually do Category 2 work is simply because the task is complex or requires a specific skill set and therefore can't be delegated as easily as some other tasks. Or, Or sometimes there's a task that requires somebody with the authority of the church to do it. There's our deacon out there closing the storage container. (laughs) Let me repeat what I just said. Another reason deacons sometimes need to actually do Category 2 work is simply because the task is complex or requires a specific skill set and therefore can't be delegated as easily as some other tasks. Or sometimes a task requires somebody with the authority of the church to do it. So for example, rather than pastors negotiating rental contracts or insurance policies or purchasing equipment for the church or these kinds of things, it really should be the deacons doing this kind of stuff. So sometimes deacons need to actually do Category 2 work. And those are just a couple of examples of times in which deacons might actually have to do the work. But just as in any reasonably healthy church, no one expects all the pastors to do all no one expects the pastors to do all the work. If the church is reasonably healthy, nobody nobody just assumes, well, he should just do everything. Um, likewise, no one should just expect the deacons to do all the category two work. Traditionally, pastors delegate 
much work out to church members. But though the delegation itself is the way that it ought to be, it ought not to be the pastors delegating most of it, but rather the deacons. This is because it shouldn't be the pastors, but the deacons who are taking primary responsibility for making sure that it actually gets done. Again, pastors need to be focused on prayer and ministry of the word. But someone needs to think about the building being locked up after the service and food to be taken to a church member in need and making sure that the grass gets cut and making sure that equipment that is faulty is fixed or replaced and thinking about the general tidiness and organization of the storage unit. Just things like this that just they have to get done by someone. Someone needs to think about those things. And really it shouldn't be the pastors, ideally. It should be the deacons. And the deacons have the authority to delegate responsibility to make sure that these things get done. And though sometimes the deacons do these things, like for example when the balls get dropped and people forget or fail to do it for whatever reason or whatever, most often the deacons are simply overseeing these things and delegating them out in the way that in many churches a pastor typically would. What could this look like in practice? If you were known in the church for being neat and tidy, would you think it strange for me sometime to come and ask you if you could tidy and organize the storage container? If you were a carpenter and I asked you to repair a broken chair that one of the children broke during the service, would you think it's strange? Probably not. But what if a deacon like Jonathan asked you? What if he knew that you owned a landscaping business and you were always driving around the island with a lawnmower anyway and said, hey, listen, would you mind to swing by the church building and cut the grass this week? Would you think to yourself, what or who gives you the authority to delegate such a thing? You're not my pastor, right? This is the, this is the mindset shift that needs to happen. Sometimes in many churches, the pastor is seen as having the authority to oversee and delegate these things. And the deacons are the people that actually do it. So the pastor delegates, delegates to the deacon, please deacon, can you cut the grass? And so the deacon says, sure pastor, I'll cut the grass and they go do it. So the deacons are the guys that do stuff around the church. The deacons are the guys that open and close and cut the grass and tidy the storage container and so on. But they're reporting to the pastor and the pastor thinks about these things, delegates these things. And if the deacon drops the ball, the pastors come in and catch the ball. But what we need is a paradigm shift because if the grass doesn't get cut, let's say I pass by here on a Saturday night and I see that the grass is long. If I'm the one who delegated it, then I'm the one who's going to be stressing between Saturday night and Sunday morning about making sure that it actually happens. Which means that I'm not actually thinking about prayer and ministry of the word with the focus that I ought to be. So as you know, the one who delegates still bears ultimate responsibility for that task and has to follow up and has to oversee that task and ultimately at times needs to step in and actually do it if the person that it's been delegated to doesn't. What the paradigm shift that we need to see is that deacons are um, in an office of authority over the church and that the way that pastors typically in many churches would oversee things and would delegate things and nobody would think that's strange the deacons really should be in that role and so they are doing it yes sometimes but very often overseeing 
And um, so this is what we need to understand is that Chris and I, as pastors, have authority over Category 1 work, prayer and ministry of the Word. We set the preaching schedule and so on and so forth. Um, We uh, prepare lessons and teaching and counseling and so on and so forth. We touch base with one another about what needs to happen in terms of caring for souls in the church and so on and so forth. But the deacons have authority over Category 2 work in the church. It's an implication of their responsibility to free pastors up for prayer and ministry of the Word. They need to be able to have the authority to take initiative, solve problems, find solutions, catalyze, change, develop systems, and so forth with respect to Category 2 work, if it is to be the case that they actually do free up pastors for Category 1 work. So deacons in a healthy church not only do, but also exercise authority over the church with respect to Category 2 work. Thus, deacons may make real decisions about systems, policy, scheduling, etc. Deacons may delegate responsibilities to church members the way that pastors traditionally would in many churches. Deacons may assess benevolent needs and disperse benevolent funds according to their best judgment. Deacons may advocate for church members with outside agencies as they deal with legal issues, medical issues, family issues, etc. Deacons may refer members to outside agencies as necessary, and so on and and so forth. Yes, they are to do this within the parameters set by the elders. Yes, they are to do it in conjunction with the pastors. There should be lines of communication open. And by the way, Jonathan and I have started meeting every Monday night. Um, on a weekly basis and we talk together and pray together um, not only about our own souls and try to walk together as fellow men and brothers in Christ but also we talk about what's happening in the church and try to put our heads together about what needs to happen pastorally what needs to happen diaconally so that there is that synergy and that um, uh, togetherness that's happening between the pastors and deacons the pastors of the church as the deacons carry out their roles do retain veto power, so to speak. They may guide, advise, and even overrule as necessary as the deacons carry out their function. But in a well-functioning church, and again, this is a paradigm shift for many, the deacons don't always need to be hesitating and checking with the pastors about everything and waiting for specific guidance. The pastors aren't always micromanaging and second-guessing the deacons. There is a synergy between the pastors and the deacons, the way that there is a synergy between the right and the left hand as literal juggling happens. They work together. The pastors do their job, and the deacons do their job, and the balls get juggled better. So Jonathan, Christ has called you to this sort of work, and the church has acknowledged this calling, and we ourselves have formally called you to labor among us in these ways. Work heartily, brother, as unto the Lord. And what is our proper response to Jonathan's work? The first aspect of our response should be to honor such men. As Jonathan is, pardon me, 
are to honor such men as Jonathan is in view of his good character and service to the church. Paul writes about Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 2, who he says nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. The backstory of this statement is that Epaphroditus had come to Paul while in prison, bringing a gift of some kind to Paul which would meet his physical and temporal needs, as the physical and temporal needs of Roman prisoners were not met by the state. They were dependent on family and friends and charity. In other words, Epaphroditus came on a diaconal type mission to care for the physical and temporal needs of Paul while Paul was incarcerated. And Paul commends him for it and says, honor such men. We would do well to show honor to Jonathan, who is to us, as Epaphroditus was to Paul, our brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. The second aspect of our proper response to Jonathan's work ought to be to cooperate with him. There are two ways in which we might be tempted to not cooperate with him. One is to oppose him. Certainly both Jonathan and I wish to be humble men. We aspire to be open to suggestions and even open to correction, if and whenever that is necessary. But it is possible to criticize and to argue with your leaders in such a way that is uncooperative and is unhelpful to us in the exercise of our responsibilities. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The phrase keeping watch over your souls implies that the writer of Hebrews had pastors primarily in mind here, as opposed to deacons, when he gives this instruction. However, by way of inference, the injunction is no less valid pertaining to the obedience due deacons within their sphere of authority. It's not as if the Lord is pleased when we obey our pastors, but, but uh, equally pleased when we disobey our deacons. Obviously, by way of inference, if the Lord says obey your leaders and submit to them, even if he's referring to pastors uh, in that particular context, by way of inference... We should obey our deacons and submit to them also within their sphere of authority. Um, Certainly, also, the dynamic is equally operative with regard to deacons in the sense that it is possible for deacons to do their job either with joy or with groaning, right? Depending on your response to them. It's possible for pastors to do their job with joy or with groaning, depending on your response to us. And it's possible for deacons to do their job with joy or with groaning, depending on your response to us. So, first, and this, this, should, this really should be obvious, but we've all seen churches where it's not the case. This should be obvious, but don't oppose Jonathan such that he has to do his job with groaning but rather let him do his job with joy because of your cooperative disposition towards him in the exercise of the responsibilities of his office. 
another way that we might be tempted to not cooperate with it is simply to passively not get involved in the work that needs to be done in the church. Remember that deacons are ultimately responsible to ensure that all of the church's Category 2 work gets done. If no one else does it, then the deacons will have to pick up the slack and do it themselves. But is that the way that God intends the body of Christ to function? As many of you know, I'm having trouble with my left hand. I even said in the announcements, that's why we're not playing guitar today. Because my, this finger only moves so much and I have no strength to press guitar strings. So, the situation is that my right hand has to pick up the slack. I go to, to pick up something with this hand and before long I'm reaching across my body with my right hand to grab it. My right hand's picking up the slack because this is not contributing. Is this an okay and sustainable situation? No. As I said in the announcements, I'm finally going to cave and go see, some, uh, see a physiotherapist about this because this is not an okay and sustainable situation. And likewise, if the members of the church just say, well, the deacon's doing it, then he's picking up the slack so I won't bother to contribute. Okay, maybe the work still gets done the way that it still gets done when my right hand compensates for my left. But is it an okay and ideal situation? Of course not. Just as I hope and pray and I'm working towards the restoration of full mobility in all of the fingers of my left hand, we should aim for each member of the church to be a contributing member to the work of the church. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians 4.16, that it is when each part is working properly, the body grows and builds itself up in love. Is it glamorous to set up and tear down on Sundays? Nope. Is it glamorous to make deposits at the bank on behalf of the church? Nope. Upload sermons from the recorder to our church website? Make and deliver a meal to the sick? Pick up and drive someone to an appointment? Phone and check in on a brother or sister who has lost a job? The list could go on and on and on. There are important, valuable, practical things that have to get done in the church. And a lot of these are not glamorous. Yet these things are necessary. We need to do overtly spiritual things in the church, right? Like we need to be reading our Bibles, praying. We need to be meeting together, encouraging one another in the Lord, informally as well as formally, uh, praying for one another, uh, speaking God's truth in love to one another, as Ephesians 4 also says, uh, seeking to speak in a way that builds up and gives grace to those who hear, uh, edifying one another, helping one another out with sanctification. We've got to do all these spiritual things, absolutely. But we also just have a lot of temporal and practical things that we've got to do as a church. And in the course of life, there are things that come up. And God doesn't only care about our souls. God cares about our bodies. And so when someone is home sick on a Sunday, we should notice that and we should care about that. When somebody is homesick on a Sunday for repeated Sundays, we should notice that and care about that and figure out how we can get involved and help and contribute. Is it prayer and ministry of the Word to do that? No. 
Is it unimportant to do that? Also, no. It's important. It matters. All of this is part of church life. So I'm not, I'm not accusing any of you of this, but I'm just saying it's a fact that some have the mentality that the pastors and the deacons should do everything in the church, that they should pick up the slack and that they will pick up the slack if I am a non-contributing member. So why would I bother to be a contributing member when the slack will get picked up anyway? Well, the reason is that it's the way that the Lord has appointed things to be. Why do I need to participate in the life of the church? Some ask. The church already has a pastor and a deacon. Well, let me paint a picture of what God designed the church to be and how he designed it to function. And then we will close. God has designed, pardon me, God has given the church the central and primary task of making disciples and teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. That is the central and primary work of the church. The pastors lead in this endeavor, but aren't expected to do it all. They rather oversee and coordinate the work even as they are all active as even as they are active participants in the work. And so I preach, obviously I'm sharing the gospel on a Sunday. One of the easiest methods of evangelism is bring someone to church and they're going to hear the gospel. So I lead in that. I'm preaching on a Sunday. I'm talking about Christ uh, as I go about my daily life between Sundays. When I'm rubbing shoulders with unbelievers, I'm looking to make and take opportunities to talk to them about Jesus. I'm hopefully setting a good example for the believers in this regard. I'm leading out in that. I'm at the front. I'm not just saying everybody else go out and evangelize while I sit at home and do nothing. Uh, I should be active in evangelism. I should be active in making people into disciples in the first place as the Holy Spirit draws and convicts and converts through my witness. But I should not be the only one evangelizing. Right? I should not, it shouldn't be the only evangelism that's happening is on Sunday mornings from the pulpit. Or in, in between Sundays, wherever John is, there may be some evangelisms happening. But none of the rest of the church members evangelize. After all, it's the pastor's job. Of course not. All of us really should be in our um, spheres of influence trying to make and take opportunities to speak the gospel to those who are yet unbelievers. And we should be helping one another along. Once people have become disciples, our job is to teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded. And so when someone becomes a believer, it's not like, okay, well, good. Now go to John, and John will teach you to observe all that Christ has commanded. That also shouldn't be our mentality. Yes, I have a role as a pastor. We should be encouraging new believers to join a church and to get connected, to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then to implicitly to be in a church and there in that context to learn to observe all that Christ has commanded. So yes, I have a role, but we should not be leaving discipleship to the pastors exclusively. That the only way that people are getting encouraged, confronted, uh, built up in the faith by means of another person's investment in them is when the pastor is over. 
is when the pastor visits, is when the pastor calls, when the pastor texts. We should all be involved in that work. And so, yes, I lead in it, but, and I'm an active participant in it, but I shouldn't be the only one doing evangelism and discipleship. In addition to the central and primary task of making disciples and teaching them to observe all that Christ has committed, there are countless temporal concerns of the church as an organization and the church members individually. There is much that needs to be done to care for one another and to care for the organization as we await the great day of Christ's return. So if Jesus doesn't come back this week, there are going to be things that need to get done in this organization. If Jesus doesn't come back this week, each of you have needs, not only of the soul, but also of the body. We should not be simply waiting for Christ to come back and assembling together on Sundays while having no regard for the needs of one another as individuals or as family units. We're not to spend the time between now, if we could say is point A, and Christ's return, which is point B. We're not to spend the time between point A and point B just merely just getting together on Sundays with no concern for one another, the needs of our bodies as well as our souls. We want one another to be well in every way. And so we're not just evangelizing and discipling one another, but if someone's sick, we're trying to care for one another. If someone's thirsty, we want to give them a drink. If someone's in prison, we want to visit them. Remember what Christ says in Matthew 25. Whatever you have done for the least of these, my brothers, you have done unto me. Christ is concerned that we show care and love for the temporal and physical needs of one another as well as the spiritual. And if Christ should tarry, there are things that need to get done in the church here as an organization. So not just the church as individuals and family units, but the church as an organization. There are things that need to happen. And just as it wouldn't be right to say, well, the pastor does all the evangelism and discipleship in our church, it wouldn't be right to say, well, the deacon does all of the temporal and physical needs in our church. He takes care of the church as an organization, and he takes care of all of the individuals and family units, temporal and physical needs. It just wouldn't be right. It's not the way that God designed it to be. And so as the pastors are active participants in the work of evangelism and discipleship, and as the pastors are leading in evangelism and discipleship, but also trying to mobilize and encourage and help and resource the rest of the church to be involved in the work of evangelism and discipleship, so the deacons are to be active participants in the work of caring for the individuals in the church and of the family units in the church. They're to be active participants in caring for the church as an organization. They're to lead out in these things. But they're also to be mobilizing, resourcing, equipping, encouraging all of us as as fellow church members to be involved in the same work. So that, remember, we're back to Ephesians 4 now. As each part is working properly then, the body builds itself up in love. The church is stunted if only the pastors and deacons are doing the work. But as rehabilitation and physiotherapy happens and the members of the body begin more and more 
to be working properly. And as not just 99% of the body is working properly, as I would say my body is right now, there's like a little 1% that's not working. As you move from that 99% to that 100% and get fully healthy, that's when, that's when the body of Christ is really clicking along. When everybody's involved in evangelism and discipleship under the primary leadership of the pastors. And when everybody's involved in caring for one another as individuals and as family units and caring for the church as an organization under the primary leadership of the deacons. And the deacons and the pastors are working collaboratively and cooperatively together in synergy, not opposing one another as that, you know, the classic scenario where you have a a deacon's board that opposes the pastor and the pastor that opposes the deacon's board and they're vying for power in the church. But when everybody's mobilized and everybody's working in synergy and everybody's doing the job that God gave them to do in the church, that's when the church is really clicking along and you're in full physical health and the body builds itself up in love. Look, Jesus loves his sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. We've been seeing in John chapter 10 over the last couple of weeks. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners like you and like I, like Jonathan. Jesus came into this world to save sinners and he shed his blood as the propitiation for our sins so that God's wrath would be justly turned away from us having already been poured out upon that great shepherd of the sheep who put himself between God's wrath and us that he might die in our room instead. Jesus Christ had a spotless wool coat, so to speak. And he covered us in the spotless wool of his righteousness, having never sinned, but having offered up to God perfect obedience on our behalf. Christ Jesus not only turned the wrath of God away from us, but clothed us in his righteousness that we might be acceptable in God's sight and that God may justly embrace us and love us without compromising his holy standards in order that God might be just and justify the ungodly. Christ Jesus came to live and to die in our place. And Christ Jesus rose and Christ Jesus ascended and the scriptures tell us that he has been appointed as the head of the church. Now, listen, is he still the shepherd of the sheep? Yes, he is. And are we still his sheep? Yes, we are. Does he care any less about us now than he did when he hung on the cross? No, he does not. The church is the primary provision that Christ, our shepherd, has made for our well-being as we make our way through this life. It's the context in which we are to hear the Word of God. It is the context in which we are to experience the work of the Spirit. It is the context in which we are to see ourselves more clearly 
in our sins and our failures and our flaws and be confronted about these things and be encouraged to change. It is in the flock that we are to make our way home under under shepherds. And as the under shepherds keep watch over your souls, the deacons work alongside them keeping watch over your bodies, so to speak, as we are dichotomous beings, as the eternal needs of your soul are being met according to the wisdom and benevolence of Christ, the shepherd, so your temporal and physical needs are to be addressed as well through the diaconal ministry of the church and under the diaconal leadership of the church according to the wisdom and benevolence of the good shepherd who loves you, soul and body. He loves you. He cares for you, not just eternally, but temporally. He loves you not just tomorrow, but today. And He has given the church to be the primary place, the primary means, the primary locus of your well-being, soul and body. Can you be saved and not be a church member? Well, of course you can. You're not saved by becoming a church member and you're not damned by not being a church member. But we we miss out on so much when we fail to understand just what a gift of grace the church is. This is the institution that Christ created. This is the organization that Christ created. Sometimes people feel like, man, it's it's too institutional. It's too organized. It's too formal. Well, Jesus made the rules and Jesus created the, the organizing processes and Jesus created the procedures and Jesus created the formality of the church because He knew that that would be good for sheep who are prone to wander. He knew that a rod and a staff would be helpful. He knew that a path to walk on instead of just letting us wander willy-nilly according to our own devices, wherever we as sheep would like to stray, he knew that some guidance would be helpful. The church is a gift. And every aspect of the church is a gift. Not only are the Word and the sacraments and the Spirit and the pastors and the fellow church members and the discipline and All of these things, not only are these things a gift of Christ the shepherd to his sheep, but the diaconate is a gift of Christ the good shepherd to his sheep whom he loves dearly. It tells us when we look at what the diaconate is, it tells us that Jesus cares about my temporal and physical needs. It tells me that Jesus is not just trying to get me out of this world to bliss in the sky forever but that Jesus cares about the here and now Christ Jesus the shepherd loves his sheep even now even today as much as he ever has including when he hung on the cross and the gift of deacons to the church is a gift from the good shepherd to the sheep so that as we go along this life trying to evangelize and make disciples and plod our way faithfully through this life. 
with all the struggles that it has, we will find assistance in the church, not only for our eternal and spiritual needs, but also for our temporal and physical needs as we plod and persevere until we are called to go live with Christ or until Christ comes to live with us. In the meantime, let us honor such men as Jonathan is and let us cooperate with him in the diaconal type ministries, that category to work of the church as that's part of Christ's wise and benevolent picture that he has envisioned for the church and decreed for her.